Thank you, Walter. One of the things that uh, happens if you try to cover too much. Hey, I'm going to unplug this real quickly, okay? If you try to cover too much in one week, you lose half your time, your sermon time, while the uh, while we're just reading the passage. So, thank you, Walter, for reading a big chunk of Scripture. We've talked about this before. Paul tells Timothy, devote yourself to the uh, public reading of Scripture. So, it's good for us to just sit and read through a big chunk of Scripture like that. So, I'm thankful for that. Well done, Walter. Would you pray with me? Lord, thank you so very much for the blessing of being here this afternoon to open the Word and sit under the Word as we, your your people, want to receive from you now. You have called us here. You have called us to be under the Scriptures. You have called us to come and be taught by you. And so would you help me to be humble and to be just a communicator of what's here? And would you help this church body to grow, to take another step in sanctification, take another step toward glory as we talk today about pursuing gifts that build the church? I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, well, we're in the second of hopefully three sermons that will try to cover the content of chapter 14 of 1 Corinthians. And uh, last week we talked about prophecy in general. What's modern day prophecy? Today we're going to talk about pursuing spiritual gifts that build the church. And in order to just set the stage, as we often do, I just want to give us some context. So back up with me for a minute in your minds. Let's remember what's going on here. In chapter 12, Paul taught us that the church is filled with people who are individually gifted, and yet they're a unified body. So we're united, and simultaneously, we're different from one another, because we've been gifted in different ways. So when Paul gets to the end of chapter 12, he says in verse 31, earnestly desire the higher gifts. Seems like a little bit of a confusing statement because Paul, actually, do you mind if we just if we take that off just so it's not a distraction? Thank you, brother. Uh, so he gets to the end of chapter 12. He says, uh, earnestly desire the higher gifts, which seems a little bit strange in light of the fact that he just told us that God's the one that apportions the gift according to his own desires, and yet Paul says, I want you to desire these, you're supposed to pursue them, and some of them actually are more desirable than other ones. Now that could be misunderstood by the Corinthians because they already are preoccupied with the gifts, which we've learned, uh, we'll see that actually today in 14.12 a little bit, but not only are they preoccupied preoccupied with that, they already have a habit of favoring gifts. Specifically, you'll remember they have a special interest in the gift of tongues, something that they think demonstrates spiritual maturity. But Paul doesn't want them to misunderstand when he says, earnestly desire the higher gifts. He doesn't want them to understand what he's meaning, so he breaks away. And he takes a one-chapter detour 
to try and reprogram their minds. And he talks about the excellency of love. Because he wants them to pursue the spiritual gifts with the motives of loving other people. Now, when you get to chapter 14, verse 1, after he's taken the detour, he goes right back to where he left off in chapter 12. Only now, hopefully, we've been reprogrammed so that we're going to pursue the gifts with a different motivation. Read with me chapter 14, verse 1. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts. He's bringing the two things together. Chapter 12, verse 31, desire certain gifts. Chapter 13, love is what ought to be motivating you. Chapter 14, pursue the gifts, do it out of love. It's going to bring these ideas together in chapter 14. So, what does it look like to earnestly desire the spiritual gifts when love is your motivator? That's what chapter 14 is about. My plan today is to give the first answer to this question. What happens when you pursue spiritual gifts out of love? What happens? Paul answers it in two ways. He he gives one answer in the first 25 verses. He gives another answer in the rest of the chapter. So we're going to look at the basic content of these first 25 verses. (laughs) I'm not going to walk step by step through all these verses because it would take a couple days maybe to do that. Uh, but what I'm going to do here, I guess I'm just going to do it a little differently. The, the main argument is in the first five verses of chapter 14. The rest of the chapter kind of spirals back to those topics again and again. If I just walk through it slowly, it'll just feel super redundant. So what I'm going to do is I'm just going to walk through the first five verses, and then I'm going to elaborate on those first five verses as Paul picks up that, that same, those same themes later in the chapter. I'm just going to I'm just going to pull them in from later in the chapter. So we will be kind of jumping around chapter 14 a little bit, but we're really going to focus on the first five verses and get the the main idea of what Paul wants to say here. So here we go. We're going to start in verse 1. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. In love... Desire gifts, especially desire the gift of prophecy, which is interesting. As we saw last week, when we talk about prophecy, modern-day prophecy, don't think Old Testament prophet. A modern-day prophecy is not a word of the Lord. It's not authoritative communication. We're not speaking God's words when modern-day prophecy is taking place. Here's the definition I gave last week. Modern-day prophecy occurs when God spontaneously brings something to mind and it is reported to others by means of merely human communication. Okay, so there's two parts to that. There's the, the God brings something to mind and the communication part of it. There's some dim form of revelation that takes place in prophecy. Paul says we prophesy in part in chapter 13, referring to the fact that things aren't perfectly clear yet. So God brings something to mind, maybe uses some words come to mind, or some image comes to mind, or some thoughts come to mind, something that's intended to build up the church body. 
And it comes with varying degrees of of clarity. But all of it, regardless of how clear or how dim, Paul describes in 13.12 as looking through a mirror dimly. It's, It's vague. Vague revelation. Dim revelation. Followed by merely human communication. These aren't God's words. These are my words. As I try to share with you something I think the Lord may have brought to mind. So modern day prophecy should be regarded with the same respect that you would give to somebody who's offering their counsel to you. Some of it's good. Some of it's not so good. It needs to be tested, we talked about in 1 Thessalonians. You should test modern day prophecy. Hold fast to what is good. And what's not good, you can kindly disregard it. It's not the word of the Lord. It does not place obligations on you like the scripture does. It's like good counsel. This is the gift that Paul wants the Corinthians to especially desire. Now, why prophecy? What's the reason for saying that? What we're going to find is that prophecy actually brings benefit to the church body. They should pursue spiritual gifts, and the motive for doing that is that they should aim for benefit to the church body. Chapter 14, verse 12 says, So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, and the Corinthians are. Paul's just affirming, you're eager for these manifestations. Since you're eager for the manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. So there's nothing wrong with desiring the spiritual gifts. The motives is, your motives are always what you need to be uh, focusing on, well, at least with regards to Paul here. Let me say it this way. There's nothing wrong with desiring spiritual gifts. Let's just make sure we're doing it for the right reason. Let's make sure that we're doing it for the sake of wanting to serve others. And if that's your motive, then you should pursue, Paul says here to the Corinthians, prophecy rather than the Corinthians' favorite gift, tongues. So what's the matter with tongues? Why prophecy rather than tongues? Verse 1, pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. Verse 2, for one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. So so Paul says, I want you to desire prophecy, and I'm going to give you a reason for it. And the first reason is, let me share with you some of the drawbacks of tongues. Verse 2 talks about the drawbacks of tongues. Verse 3 is going to talk about the benefits of prophecy. But just look, let's look at the drawbacks of tongues. Actually, most of this chapter, most of these 25 verses, is talking about tongues. He says... He lands on prophecy at the end, but most of it he's talking about uh, the drawbacks of tongues. So let's clarify here. Verse 2, the first thing he says is that tongues are not focused on people. Tongues are focused on God. They're directed to God. One who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. The gift of tongues is a form of personal prayer. It's directed towards God. He says in 1414, if I pray in a tongue, if I pray in a tongue, 
my spirit prays. It's God-directed. Or 14.16, you give thanks with your spirit when you're speaking in tongues. It's God-directed. Now, the second thing that he says here is that no one understands what's being said. No one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the spirit. Now, this includes the speaker himself. speaker doesn't know, usually, normally I should say, what's going on. Verse 13, Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray for the power to interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. Even the speaker needs a special gift to be able to interpret the utterances that are coming out of his or her mouth. The mind is unfruitful, Paul says. It doesn't understand the utterances. Now, the real issue in verse 2 is not that the speaker doesn't understand himself. The real issue is that when a person speaks in tongues, others do not understand what's being said. This person is uttering mysteries, he says. That is, the main problem with the gift of tongues is that the things that are coming out of the mouth are not normally intelligible. Paul revisits that point over and over again throughout this chapter. Verse 9. If with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? What if, oh, I'm sorry, for you will be speaking into the air. So, why is that a problem? I mean, so what if people don't understand what you're saying when you pray in a tongue? The problem is that it creates a communication breakdown, which keeps other people from benefiting from what you're saying. Verse 11, if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker a foreigner to me. We're We're not communicating with each other like foreigners who can't understand one another, we're just not communicating. I'm not getting anything that you're saying here. We're not connecting. Or verse 16, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you are saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person, and here it is, is not being built up. That's the issue. The outsider can't even say amen to your prayer because she doesn't have a clue what you just prayed for. And therefore, it prevents people from benefiting from the speech. Verse 6. Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you? Unless I bring you some revelation, or knowledge, or prophecy, or teaching. Notice that all, in all four of these things, there is a coherent content that's being communicated in order to bring benefit. How will I benefit you if I don't provide coherent content, revelation, knowledge, teaching, prophecy? And the answer is, I won't benefit you. It won't be a benefit. Because there's communication breakdown. It's unintelligible. 
Paul uses two illustrations to communicate this in this chapter. One is in verse 7. It goes like this. If even lifeless instruments, such as the flute or the harp, do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? I was just thinking about this uh, this image and, and remembering when I was learning to play guitar, I was learning at the same time as my friend Max. And Max and I would sit in the living room of the house, and we'd be playing guitar together. And so I'm playing Stairway to Heaven, and he's playing, you know, Carry on Our Wayward Son or something. And uh, and we're playing at the same time. And maybe one of us is even tuning the, the guitar while the other one's playing. And my mom was like, boys, go outside. <laughs> it's, uh, it's terrible. I don't know if you've been in there. You know, you, have you ever been in Marshalls? Like, on two different sides of the store, you can hear music coming out over here. We, Amy was just pointing this out the other day. And then you go to this side of the store, and there's another radio station on. In the same store, it's like, ugh. Somebody needs somebody in their personal relations department needs to, uh, or whatever, whoever, whatever department does that kind of stuff needs to uh, realize that this does not bring benefit. So that's what Max and I did for a summer, and it doesn't bring benefit. Or here's the other illustration he uses, verse eight: If the bugle gives an indistinct sound. Who will get ready for battle? Okay, a bad bugler brings no benefit to the army because nobody can tell what he's doing. If you're going to hire a bugler, make sure he knows how to bugle because if he doesn't do his job, it's going to be bad news. Did Johnny just blow the battle bugle? I don't know. You know, that's, that's not good for war. So that's Paul's second illustration. It doesn't, it doesn't benefit. If it's not intelligible, you can't tell what's happening. In fact, not only do uninterpreted tongues fail to bring benefit, but this is frightening. Paul says they actually drive people away from the church, giving them the impression that we are out of our minds. Verse 23. If therefore the whole church comes together, and all speak in tongues, and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? This comes right in the middle of the the most complex part of the whole argument. This paragraph, this last paragraph, verses 20 to 25, is extremely complicated. I'm not going to dive into it because we won't get enough bang for our buck if I do. But the gist of what Paul says in verses 21 and 22 is that uninterpreted tongues in the congregation has the effect of bringing judgment upon unbelievers who join because it drives them away from the church. Some of you have been in this situation. Some of you, I I just have talked to enough of you to know, some of you have been in a situation where you've been in a church where there was uninterpreted tongues taking place, and you're like, I'm out of here. This is weird. Verse 21, Paul quotes from Isaiah 28, where the Lord says, they will not listen to me. The, The unbeliever will leave, and they will not listen to what the Lord has to say. Because when they go to church, all they see is nutbags. 
So uninterpreted tongues in the church not only fails to bring benefit to the church, but it actually does damage. It prevents people from hearing the gospel by driving them away. So under normal circumstances, speaking in tongues is, verse 9, speaking into the air. It has no direct value for serving and benefiting others. Now that doesn't mean that there is no value whatsoever with uninterpreted tongues. I'm going to come back to that. Not saying there's no value whatsoever. There's an important qualification that we need to make and we'll come back to it. But just to recap, why does Paul want the Corinthians to especially desire prophecy? Well, the first reason, negatively speaking, is because the gift of tongues, which is what they prefer, has some drawbacks. One, it's directed to God, not to people. And two, it's unintelligible. So that's the gist of things so far. Verse 3. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. Prophecy provides benefits. Tongues has some drawbacks. Prophecy provides benefits. The first thing Paul says is that that prophecy is directed towards people. It's directed at them. It's a direct form of communication to another human being. Secondly, prophecy upbuilds, encourages, and consoles. In other words, it not only communicates directly to them, but it tells them things that brings benefit to them. And the implication is that prophecy is intelligible. brings intelligible and good information. It speaks to people words that they can understand. The content is coherent. And that's why it has the ability to build them up. Verse 9. Paul says, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others. Talking to them, I'm bringing them things that they can understand. I'm speaking with my mind. I would rather speak five intelligible words directly to a person to bring them benefit than, Paul says, 10,000 words in a tongue. It is so important that it's intelligible. Just that image. Five intelligible words versus 10,000 words in a tongue. It's so important. Okay, and so that's the benefit of prophecy. That's why Paul prefers it. Now, in verses 2 and 3, Paul has given a negative reason and a positive reason for why prophecy. He's going to do the same thing in verse 4. A negative reason for tongues, or a negative reasons talking about the drawbacks of tongues, and then a positive reason for prophecy, talking about the benefits of prophecy. Uh, verse 4. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. That's why prophecy is Better. That's why I want you to especially desire it. He's, he's explicitly here stating that prophecy brings greater benefit to the church. Verse 5. Now I want you all to speak in tongues. Let's just, I mean, let's just stop right there. It's important to realize that Paul is not against tongues. I want you all to speak in tongues. It doesn't mean that they all will. It just means that he 
values it. It's a, it's a blessed gift. It's the ability to speak in a language that you have never learned. It could be a human language that you've never learned, like in Acts 2, or according to chapter 13, verse 1, it could be the ability to speak in the language of angels. It's a blessed gift. Now, I don't have the gift of tongues, but Paul indicates it's very valuable. Verse 2, this person is uttering mysteries in the Spirit, capital S, Spirit, in the Holy Spirit. Verse 14, if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays. So the Holy Spirit is somehow animating my spirit so that I'm praying in the Spirit. Verse 15, I will sing praise with my spirit. Verse 18, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. That's cool. Paul clearly validated the gift. He clearly valued the gift, and he even practiced the gift pretty extensively, it sounds like, doesn't it? More than all of you. And the question is, in what context? In what context is this a benefit? And I think the answer is in 18, verse 18 and 19. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church. There it is. In church. In the congregation. In the gathering. Together with the saints. I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Uninterpreted tongues are normally not valuable in the church context. They're not normally intelligible. They don't know what's going on. Tongues can be valuable in the church context if they are interpreted. I'll come to that in just a minute. But uninterpreted tongues are normally not are not uninterpreted tongues are not valuable in the church context because they're unintelligible. Now, just judging from what Paul has said here throughout the rest of this chapter, it seems to me that uninterpreted tongues are valuable as a private prayer language. That is, when other people aren't around. So in the context of privacy, the use of the gift of tongues, even if you don't know what's going on, allows your spirit to pray, it allows your spirit to give thanks, it allows you to sing praise, even if you don't know what's going on. And this, Paul says, can be a benefit to the individual. That's what verse 4 said. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself. So there is a building up of self that takes place, apparently, in uninterpreted tongues. It's happening in a private setting. And I think that can be a good thing. In fact, it probably does indirectly bring benefit to the church body. Because you're, you're a person who is in private praising giving thanks, praying, well, that changes you. And that means that in your interactions with the rest of the church body, you're a person who's growing closer to the Lord in your private prayer times. So I do think that this gift, even uninterpreted, brings indirect benefit to the church body. So Paul's not against tongues. They just normally need to be practiced in private. 
But even so, verse 5 goes like this. Now I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. Even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues. That's a pretty big statement. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues. In what sense? In the sense that prophecy directly builds the church. It's a greater benefit to the church body because it brings direct benefit to the church body. Now, the great equalizer is the last phrase here. Actually, not quite the last one. Let me just read all of verse 5. Now, I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. If a tongue is interpreted, then it stands equal with prophecy. Why? Because it's intelligible. That's, what, that's, that's all he's after. It just needs to be, it needs to make sense to people. It has no ability to bring benefit, direct benefit to people if it doesn't make sense. So Paul even encourages those who have the gift of tongues to pray for the gift of interpretation in verse 13. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray for the power to interpret. So whether you prophesy or whether you speak and interpret a tongue, either one accomplishes the goal that we're aiming for, namely intelligible communication for the sake of the benefit of others. And by the way, I think the gift of interpretation is probably rare. I've personally never heard a tongue interpreted. I've heard tongues lots in my life. I've never heard heard it interpreted. Um, In fact, even heard some interesting stories about people who have kind of set up situations to have people interpret, and it it's like, uh, I won't go into this, but it's it's not edifying. Um, I've never seen it happen, but uh, I believe that it happens, and it needs to happen. if you're going to be using the tongues in, in the church. Um, but I think it's rare. And that's why Paul, even though he grants that interpret, you can pray for interpretation, he still at the end of the day says, I, I, I desire that you prophesy. So it's, it would seem that prophecy is a, is a gift that's more widely distributed. Um, it would seem. The section closes with one final statement about the value of prophecy. It turns out that it's not only valuable for the building up of the church, but it's valuable for outsiders as well. The gift of prophecy being exercised in the local church is valuable for outsiders, who unbelievers, who come in. Why? Because when a church has grown mature in love and the gifts of the Spirit are being exercised in that environment, then the things that are said by those who are prophesying makes sense to people who visit. In fact, it makes so much sense to them. There's such penetrating insight delivered in patient and kind and humble love as this church body is loving one another and speaking into one another's lives. There's such penetrating insight that there's only one explanation for this group of people right here. God is here. It's the only explanation for it. This is how Paul ends this section in verses 24-25. If all prophesy, 
and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. There is such penetrating insight in the way that these people are prophesying, speaking into one another's lives, such penetrating insight into the things that are being said that are even revealing his own heart. Paul says that the secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so, falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. God is really among us, is he not? He's here. The God of the universe, our maker, is in the midst of his people, dwelling in the midst of his people. He knows us. And he's here. And it seems to me that Paul paints a picture here of a church. He's painting it for these Corinthians. The Corinthians have never experienced this. But he says, here's what a church could look like. It's a church that's so committed to love. For one another. It's a church that is so committed to serving one another that that motive has determined their whole mentality as they pursue gifts. And because, the, because of that, they have specifically pursued gifts that are going to bring benefit to other people. And one of those gifts is the gift of prophecy. And Paul paints a picture of a church that's prophesying in love and serving one another. So that people are being encouraged, people are being consoled, people are being built up, and it is evident that God is among them. It's not weird, it's not ecstatic, it's not zany and frantic, it's just evident, even to people who do not know Christ, that God is in the midst of these people. It's the only explanation. Now you you know, and I know, that there's more to this world that beats the eye. There's more going on here than we can see. And there are a lot of people in the world that don't want to believe that kind of thing. I mean, you wouldn't believe the kinds of things that post-enlightenment scholars have done in order to try and interpret the miraculous events in the Bible. Jesus didn't really die on the cross, they say. He He went into a coma-like state. This is called the swoon theory. Went into a coma-like state, you know, lost a lot of blood, passed out, went unconscious, was put in the tomb, but the coolness of the tomb revived him. And then I guess apparently at that point he rolled a two-ton stone out of the way and then took down two roaming soldiers. Uh, Or Jesus didn't really walk on the water. There was a submerged sandbar. I'm serious. That's, that's, that's out there. I may have shared that with you before. Um, the book of Daniel could not have possibly be, been written until after the events that it predicts. Because the predictions are so precise, there's no way it could have been written beforehand. These are, these are rational explanations that try to... Uh, these, are, these, are, yeah, these are attempts to provide rational explanations for things that just are... Beyond the possibilities of nature. Well, we believe in a God that is over nature. He is supranatural. 
The world will always try to find ways to call into question the possibility of a sovereign and supernatural being who is at work in the world, but we know better. We have tasted the glory of a God who is invisible, and yet He has revealed Himself to us. And I lost my place. Here's how Peter says it. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. And though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. That's the Christ that we have seen. That's the God that we have known. And not only have we known Him, but He has taken up residence within us. And He is in the midst of our church body. He is in the midst of each life of every individual who is trusting in Christ, dwelling in them as His temple. God is really among us. His Spirit is really here. And Paul says prophecy is one of the ways in which he intends to reveal that reality to outsiders. Pretty cool. So, Father, make us a people who excel in love and teach us to pursue spiritual gifts that build your church. Father, provide for us the gifts of speaking intelligible and edifying words to one another. Paul encouraged the Corinthians to favor prophecy over tongues. And God, if it pleases you, we ask that you would enable our church body to exercise and test the gift of prophecy in healthy and orderly ways so that the church would be built up and so that outsiders might perceive that you are indeed in our midst, Lord. Allow this to adorn our ever-centralized focus on the gospel of Jesus Christ. so that more and more souls might join us in saying we believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory.